Welcome to Our Missouri, a podcast about the people, places, culture, and history of the 114 counties and independent city of St. Louis that comprise the great state of Missouri. Each episode focuses on a topic related to the state, ranging from publications about Missouri's history to current projects undertaken by organizations to preserve and promote local institutions. The Our Missouri podcast is recorded at the Center for Missouri Studies in Columbia and is generously provided to you by the State Historical Society of Missouri. And now, here's your host, Sean Rost. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, or whatever hour you're tuning in to listen to the Our Missouri podcast. My name is Sean Ross, and I'll be your guys. We explore the memories, moments, and misfortunes from our Missouri. Water. Did you ever stop to think just how important water is to your everyday life? From health, sanitation, and nutrition to transportation, recreation, and cultural identity, water is just as important today as it has been for countless people for generations. Whether it's the Mississippi River, the Missouri River, or the endless list of rivers, creeks, ponds, lakes, and even fountains that dot Missouri's landscape, this series is all about water. So with that, let's dive right in to water and waterways. Our guest today is Bonnie Stepanoff. She holds a PhD in history from the University of Missouri and is presently a professor emeritus of history at Southeast Missouri State University. She is the author of several books, including The Dead-End Kids of St. Louis, Homeless Boys and the People Who Tried to Save Them, From French Community to Missouri Town, St. Genevieve in the 19th Century, Thad Snow, A Life of Social Reform in the Missouri Boot Heel, Big Spring Autumn, and Working the Mississippi, Two Centuries of Life on the River. She's also the editor of From Missouri, An American Farmer Looks Back. Welcome to Our Missouri, Bonnie. Thank you. Now tell us a little bit about the origins of this project, Working the Mississippi. Okay, well, back in the 90s, 1990s, I worked for Missouri State Parks. Actually, it was I started in the 80s, so it was mid-80s to the 90s I worked for. Missouri State Parks, and um, my job was as a cultural resource preservationist, so my job was to help the parks um, officials oversee the historic sites within the park system. I was uh, fascinated by Big Oak Tree State Park in Mississippi County uh, because it preserved some of the original um, wetlands, forested wetlands of the um, of southeastern Missouri. And um, fortunately, I was given the assignment of writing some copy for labels for exhibits in the visitor center at Big Oak Tree. They had, um, the naturalists had been working on it for quite a while, and they had a lot of information about the animals, plants, and the terrain, but they didn't have anything about the people. So they asked me to write something about the cultural history of Big Oak Tree. That's when I came across that Snow's book um, from Missouri, and that's a fascinating book for anyone who hasn't read it. It's a it's a memoir of a of a farmer in the Boot Heel during the 20s, 30s, and 40s, and um, Thad Snow was a very interesting man, a, a very uh, quirky kind of man, and. He um, came to his own conclusions about um, the boot heel and its culture and its society. And um, but he did participate in the transformation of the boot heel from forested wetlands or swamps to um, farmland, and it helped to turn the boot heel cotton-producing country, which 
caused a change, a, a change in the migration um, and the, the development of the sharecropping system. And Snow actually, he participated in that. He was the owner of a thousand acres, which he cleared. He cleared most of it, but he kind of re he regretted that. He came to regret clearing the land. Um, and he did farm with sharecroppers, but in 1939, he took the side of the sharecroppers in the roadside demonstration, and he took a lot of um, criticism uh, for that, but uh, he stuck to his position and supported the sharecroppers, and he began to think like an environmentalist, um, and he, believed, he came to believe that we had lost a, a lot when we lost those wetlands or most of those wetlands. So Big Oak Tree is one of the few remaining holdings of unforested, um, of land that's not forested in the southeastern Blue Hill. Unfortunately, or fortunately, the soil there was very fertile and became very good farmland, so most of it was logged off by the, by the 30s and 40s. So I began to get interested in the, the landscape along the Mississippi River. Um, the, uh, the drainage um, projects, changing landscape, and I began to think about the connection between the environment and history, especially labor history, which was my field study at the University of Missouri. So that's the, the, the very beginning of it. Um, and then um, as time went on, I, I ended up um, moving to Cape Girardeau and teaching at Southeast Missouri State University. So I lived in a river town um, and spent a lot of time looking at the river, just sitting on a bench and looking at the river and being fascinated by the barges and the boats. So, so really that's what led up to eventually um, writing the book. In thinking about the preparation for the book and certainly being there, as you said, on the river, that certainly carries a lot of significance and weight in considering the project, but what documents and archives and even sites did you consult with and, and visit in order to kind of develop this, this project into, a, into the finished book? Well, I had visited uh, many sites along the river in, in the course of working for the parks, so that was a head start. Um, when I actually started doing the research specifically for the book, well, I had moved the St. Louis area, and I, I, I am a frequent user of the State Historical Society collection here in St. Louis. And by the way, you know, as you know, they will they will bring collections here if you request them in advance. So that I was able to do research at the State Historical Society here um, at their at their St. Louis branch, and and it happens to be in the same building as the Mercantile Library, which are both located in the University Library at the University of Missouri-St. Louis. And the Mercantile Library has an enormous collection called the Herman Teapot National Waterways Library, which is all about waterways and travel and commerce on rivers. Um, so that was huge. Um, and then there's another collection at the Mercantile. It's called the Ruth Ferris Collection of River Life and Lore, which is full of interesting Material. Other than that, I also used the Missouri State Archives uh, collections here that are were in the branch here in St. Louis. And then um, I was very familiar with the St. Genevieve Archives because I'd done field schools when I taught at Southeast Missouri State University. We had a field school every summer in St. Genevieve, and with 
just poured, combed through their archives and other local collections. Um, one I want to mention is a local museum in Cape Girardeau called the Cape River Heritage Museum, which has lots of artifacts and um, documents relating river life and local and local history. And then, of course, I visited the, all the towns and cities that I wrote about in the book. So I was able to uh, really comb through a lot of local collections, and, and that's I recommend that to anyone who has an interest in history. It's just so much fun, and there's so much there that you wouldn't would never anticipate would be there. Now, the format of the book is is designed in such a way that the reader really follows the Mississippi River on down, and really you take them through various, not only occupations, as we'll talk about, but also communities as well. So talk to us a little bit about these communities and why you selected to focus on them. Okay. Um, well, I chose to focus on the middle Mississippi River. Um, there, there are more books and articles about the lower Mississippi and the upper Mississippi. The middle Mississippi doesn't get as much attention. And so um, I start with St. Louis and work my way down to Memphis, which are the kind of bookends of the middle Mississippi because they're um, you know, the two big cities at either point on the river. And then, so St. Louis and Memphis were obvious choices. And then smaller cities and towns along the river. I was very familiar with St. Genevieve, and so, and besides, it's a fascinating, fascinating town. Um, so I chose St. Genevieve and New Madrid as um, smaller towns on the Missouri side of the river, and Chester and Cairo, Illinois, as um, representative towns on the Illinois side of the river. I discovered along the way of doing this that um, these towns are all, first of all, the riverboats were always very connected to the land, um, land on either side of the river. It's not like somebody on the ocean or the open seas. The riverboats always were very close to land, and they navigated partly by the sounds and the sights of these towns and cities along the riverbank, um, you know, even sometimes in the dark and in the fog, they would navigate by the familiar sounds of dogs barking, you know, so the communities and the riverboats were very much connected with each other. And and they were connected by the, um, one thing, the, the music on the riverboats, the, the passenger boats had bands and orchestras that when they stopped, you know, in a certain town, they would they would stop and the people from the town could come and listen to the music or dance to the music on the riverboats. In part, the music was a safety. <laughs> it was, it helped uh, people to know that the riverboats were there, you know, it, it, when there was not very good visibility, you could hear the music, especially the calliopes, because they were very, very loud. So the people in the towns um, got very, very familiar with the boats on the river, and um, and the boats helped to shape the culture of the towns and and cities, and not and also of course people lived in the river towns found jobs, not only as you know captains and pilots, um, roustabouts, but also as uh, clerks and uh, 
stewards and cooks uh, on the riverboats. So I wanted to talk about all these different communities and also the different occupations of the people. Now, as you mentioned earlier, of course, your, your, your lengthy career at Southeast Missouri State University in Cape Girardeau, certainly you're familiar with the town. You said you, you kind of gazed upon the river from that community mm -hmm. as well. Did you learn anything in writing this book new about Cape Girardeau as well? I, I did. I, I well, First of all, the river now, I mean, the town of Cape Girardeau now in this, this time period seems cut off from the river to a great extent because of the flood wall. Um, there's a 50-foot flood wall along the river, and it protects Cape Girardeau. It protected it in 1993, especially because the river crested very, very near the top of that flood wall in 93. So I think the town was more connected to the river before that flood wall was built. But still, um, well, most of the time, the, the doors are open. The, you know, the, there are big, 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 huge doors that, that close off the flood wall when there's when there's a threat. Um, but most most of the doors are open, so people still go down to the river and just sit and watch the boats go by, and um, and talk to each other. And I, I found that to be a very peaceful kind of activity. Um, and then I found out, you know, more of the connection between local people and the boats. I mean, there are still people who go and, and get jobs on the boats and the barges, and uh, occasionally there's uh, one of the river queens with, with passengers that comes down. So interplay between boats and the people. And the, there's a local music scene in, in Cape Girardeau that directly re reflects the influence of the riverboats. Um, one of the well-known local musicians in the past, you know, in the 20th century was a man named Jeff Stacy, who got his start um, playing piano on the riverboats, but he had to, um, he had to double as a calliope player. Uh, apparently the calliope is, is so big and so hard to play, and it's uh, so hot, the keys get so hot uh, and, and wet that to wear rubber, big, big rubber gloves to play it. Um, so that was how he got his start in music. And there are still bands, Gary Ford's orchestra that plays a lot of Dixieland jazz. And um, so, so the music definitely was a cultural function of the river. And we talked a little bit now about the communities there between St. Louis and, and Memphis, as you said, but uh, of course you alluded to earlier the, the careers and the lives and the work that were occurring uh, along the Mississippi River as well. Talk to us about those individuals and those occupations and those groups that, that you focused right. on and really how their experiences varied along the river. Okay. Um, I'd be glad to. Oh, there's one thing I want to mention first in light of current events. The, one of the, the negative effects of the river and river travel, especially in the 19th century, was that... Uh, the riverboats were carriers of contagious diseases. And so um, cholera, for instance, uh, was carried upriver on the, on the riverboats, and the people would disembark, and they'd have, they would be infected with cholera, and that, uh, they would infect the people in the city. So St. Louis was very hard hit more than once by cholera epidemics, directly connected to, the, to boat traffic and boat 
travel. Um, and also yellow fever, um, which hit Memphis very hard, really started in the poor areas along the riverfront where um, many of the workers on the boats lived um, and then was carried along the river. So I think there was a, there were many, many positive influences of the riverboats, but that was one very negative one. As far as the crews, it was um, there was a hierarchy. Obviously, um, I was told by a couple of the um, mates and engineers that I talked to that the um, captain was often called the old man, and 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 he was in charge. And but he wasn't as as much of a tyrant as um, sea captain. You know the way sea captains are portrayed, at least in fiction. The the captain was usually uh, he he was definitely in charge, but was usually not a real um, dictatorial kind of person. Um, but then there was um, there was sort of the manage, managerial group of workers, including the captain, the pilots, the engineers, mates, and the clerks, who were like the white-collar workers on the boats, the more skilled workers, I guess, although I don't really like to talk about that because I think all the workers were skilled workers. Um, and then there were blue-collar workers, the deckhands, who um, worked on the boats and helped clean the decks and boat. The roustabouts who worked on the on the docks and loaded and unloaded. And there were, um, you know, there were racial differences. There were, um, before and after the Civil War, there were black men and, and white men who worked as roustabouts and deckhands, but... Um, and they and they often worked together, especially on the smaller boats. Although on the bigger boats, there sometimes were separate crews. Um, and if they and when they stayed on the boats and slept on the boats, they were generally in separate quarters. So there was that crew, the the crew members were um, on the boats, on the docks, doing the physical labor. And then there were um, there were cooks and maids. Um, not only on the passenger boats, but on you know, the tow boats and other and other boats, because of course the crew had to be fed. So um, they hired cooks and maids, which were sometimes black people, sometimes white, um, sometimes male. Um, there were male cooks and female cooks. The maids were female, but they were the, called the cabin crew, the the ones who took care of the meals and the tidying up and the cleaning of the places where people slept. I did several oral interviews. My favorite one was with um, a woman named Rosemary Thrower, who was the mother of a friend of mine in Cape Girardeau um, and still had lots of recipes. My daughter, uh, Tammy, would share uh, Rosemary's recipes with me. She was a cook the river boats in the 1970s and 1980s. He started off working at Southeast Missouri State University in the in the dormitories as a cook, but it turned out that she could make three times more money working on the on the towboats, the, the barges. Um, so she became a cook on the river. She said the first time that she went on the boats as a cook she was gone for a whole month this is the other thing is the boats were very slow I and mean, it was a pretty slow mode of travel travel 
So um, Cruz would be gone for a long time from their families. Um, so she was gone for a whole month, and she said she had um, a daughter, and I think she had six sons. She had a large family. She was trying to support this large family. Some of them were old enough by this time to help, to t- you know, to take care of the younger ones. But she was gone for a month, and she said she cried for the whole 30 days. Um, and she said she served a lot of salty food. But she said that, and she was the only woman, usually she was the only woman in, on the crew. Um, but she said that they treated her with respect. Um, she said they better treat her with respect or they wouldn't get any food. Crew members that I interviewed said that the cooks had a very um, special status on the boat. The, the men treated the cooks, you know, like queens, really. Um, and it was very, um, meals were very hearty. She made biscuits every day and cinnamon rolls every day and nice big uh, meals on, on Sundays. So after she got used to being away from her family, she had a pretty satisfying life. And um, the men I talked to also, even though that it was hard work and uh, there were lots of dangers and the worst things were ice. Ice and low water were the worst things because low water you could go aground and ice you could get stuck. Um, but, you know, the sunrises and sunsets and being out on the water, seeing all the wildlife and, um, you know, it was a very, in many ways, a very satisfying life as Mark Twain expressed very well. One point that that struck me as I was thinking about the river as I was as I was going through your book is the idea of change, not only the types of transportation on the river or the size of the communities as they grow or even you know decline and vanish, to even the jobs available and their evolution over time, and even the the direction of the river, the bends of the river itself. Looking over that that time period of your book, what do you see as perhaps one of the biggest changes that has occurred along the Mississippi River? Well, I think, um, without a doubt, the biggest change was the Corps of Engineers projects, the flood control and the levees. They changed, really, the, the shape of the river and the depth of the river. It used to be wider and shallower. Um, they protected the towns and cities with levees, but in in some ways, you'd have to, you have to admit that floods became even even worse in some ways. So there were in the 20th century there were some very big, devastating floods as we know within memory. And then the connection with uh, the levees and the flood control came the drainage projects, especially in you know, below Cape Girardeau in the lower uh, part of the river below Cape Girardeau and what they call the lowlands of southeast Missouri. They there were huge uh, drainage projects in the 20th century that kind of went along tandem with big lumber industry that developed in the late 19th, early 20th century. And I do also think that rail travel contributed to this as as it became more, the the railroads ran along the river in many cases. So railroads brought uh, lumber companies and um, they were able to get down into into the swamps the drainage. So it all it all went together, the big process of lumbering and deforestation and drainage can completely um completely transformed, especially 
the landscape and the culture of southeastern Missouri, which became farmland and not backwoods swampland. I'm a, you know, I'm a labor historian. That was a special field. Um, I began to see a lot of connections between environmental change and um, economic change, and the changes labor relation or you know the system of um, of labor especially in southeastern Missouri, which led, I think, to big sharecroppers strike, the sharecroppers roadside demonstration. In fact, um, Thad Snow, who I keep going back to a lot, but in his book, he connected a big flood in um, 1937 to the big strike of the sharecroppers in 1939. During that flood, there were Many, many sharecroppers living in the river bottoms, living close to the river in the floodplain, and they were, it was a winter flood, cold and sleety, and they were driven from their home. They had to, you know, abandon their homes in the cold and the sleet. And at that point, this was also, of course, the Depression, and the federal government was taking more of an interest in helping people. Um, the sharecroppers, the plight of the sharecroppers came to the attention of federal agencies and sharecroppers themselves learned that, you know, there were causes for their problems, for their poverty, and learned how to um, organize, created the Southern Tenant Farmers Union um, and began to organize. Um, Owen Whitfield was a friend of um, Dad Snow, one of the organizers of the union and one of the organizers of the demonstration. By the way, Thad Snow was not the mastermind of the demonstration, but he did give rest strong support for demonstration. So I think um, that was one of the was a, a, a time of huge change in the in the Mississippi River Valley, the Middle Mississippi River Valley, the, the depression and the recognition of the social system and the, and the plight of the sharecroppers was important. Um, and then I think, of course, the levees and the flood walls and the flood control measures did, um, to some extent, and also the development of the railroads did, to some extent, separate communities um, from the river. Although it's hard to, you know, there, there's still a love of the river. I, in, in Cape Girardeau, I remember sitting on the hill. There's a big courthouse on the hill in Cape Girardeau that overlooks the river and they have fireworks every year there. I think that the people still have this um, feeling about the river. Finally, to step back from the banks of the Mississippi River and and to leave southeast Missouri and and even as you talked about with that snow, the boot heel area of Missouri, uh, another publication of yours, Big Spring Autumn, looks at, of course, the big spring spring area uh, in the Missouri Ozarks. Talk a little bit about that in connection to this theme of water and waterways, you know, about the experiences not only on the Mississippi for you, but even up in the Ozarks, the big spring and current river. Okay. Um, well, the current river, of course, is one of the purest, clearest um, Ozark streams, and big spring is one of the most beautiful Cold water springs in Missouri. Not the most pristine. That that would be Greer Spring. But I I, I had a chance um, in 2002 to uh, take a sabbatical. It was called a sabbatical in the parks in the national park system. 
and I had a chance to work with the um, archaeologists, Big Spring, on a project to document a project there that was done in the 1930s. Big Spring was one of the first Surrey State Parks. The, the first state parks to become part of the park system included um, Big Spring Round, Spring and Alley Spring, three um, beautiful, pure Ozark Springs. And so um, eventually in the 60s, those three parks were absorbed into what's called the Ozark National Scenic Riverways, and they became federal property. They were no longer state parks, but they were part of a federal effort to preserve the current river and the Dex Fork River um, corridor. Um, and those three parks were in that corridor. Big Spring in um, near Van Buren uh, was where the archaeologists and the Park Service, some of the Park Service um, professionals were housed and, and did their work. And so I was I was given a chance to work with them and um, to write a historic site report on CCC projects at Big Spring. And the CCC was the Civilian Conservation Corps, which was a Depression-era agency created, one, to give jobs to poor unemployed men, and two, to conserve um, forests and soils and natural areas. So Big Spring had a CCC project there. There was a there were CCC companies stationed there under the supervision of the army. They were supervised by the army, but their projects were supervised by the National Park Service, and they built at Big Spring the CCC. And by the way, these these men worked for a dollar a day. <laughs> they got a dollar a day, and then they got three square meals a day. They lived in in barracks. They had chances to take high school classes. They had baseball teams. They at 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 Big Spring, their um, projects included doing landscape work and also, you know, the CCC is sometimes called the Tree Army because they did plant a lot of trees. They, to some extent, they reforested the Ozarks in Missouri. Unfortunately, they didn't reforest the Boot Hill because the Boot Hill soil was too rich; it was too valuable as farmland. But in the Ozarks, they planted. I don't know, millions of trees. and um, But also they worked in parks. And at Big Spring, they built um, entrance gates, cabins, a lodge, a beautiful stone lodge. And some of them learned a trade. They learned the building trades. Uh, they worked under skilled local men. They built, um, they uh, quarried stone and built stone buildings. They also used logs and built log buildings and um, created um, picnic shelters and a little museum, a state park. And they also kind of, they also did a lot of work around the spring itself, which is huge. It's, it's called Big Spring for a reason because it's this gigantic gushing flow of millions of gallons of water up, out from a rock um, limestone bluff. But it's not pristine anymore um, since the CCC because um, originally when, before it was part of this project, it, it, it flowed out in all different directions and made a big you know, kind of swampy mess. Um, and one of the projects the CCC did in order to make it more beautiful was they channeled the water that came out of the spring into a well, stream called the Spring Branch. Um, 
which is really sort of a it's a man-made way of getting the all the water from the spring to flow out in one beautiful stream which makes it more beautiful but less less wild and natural so anyway my job was to document the work that these men did and I worked with uh, Jim Price, the archaeologist, and he, and he mapped all, all the work of the CCC. I did a lot of research, local newspapers about the CCC projects. I interviewed some of the workers, and most of them thought that this was one of the best things that ever happened to them, even though they were working for a dollar a day and they were working like crazy. I mean, they were working so hard. Um, you know, they remember it as one of the best times of of their life. Um so I, I was really inspired by by them, and um, also I had a chance to just hire um, the the current river and it moving on the current river, and and it's very uh, it's maybe too heavily frequented by tourists in some ways, but if you go after Labor Day, it's <laughs> you're there, you know, you're there by yourself in in solitude. It's a it's a wonderful um, pure stream, and and by the way, um, in them up. But Thad Snow, at the end of his life, left his farm in Mississippi County, and took up residence in the Rosecliff Inn, on the banks of the Current River, where he could watch the river go by all day. And uh, it's now it's it, it burned down, but there's another hell there called the Landing on the same spot, which has has a beautiful view of the Current River. And uh, he wrote his book, and in, in his book he praised this clear-flowing stream and expressed his regret at uh, cutting down the trees and clearing all, all that land. And However, he did save a good-sized portion of that land, and his daughter uh, showed me that he, he kept some of the original forest on a portion of his land. And his, his daughters and grandchildren are um, conservationists. Well, thank you very much for joining me today, Bonnie. Oh, you're, you're very welcome. Thank you for listening to the Our Missouri podcast. If you would like to learn more about the podcast, including past and future episodes, information about guests and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org forward slash our dash Missouri. <laughs>